Good afternoon. Today we have visiting uh, Dr. Matthew Getz from the uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Matthew is a physician researcher and a clinical trialist who I found has a Bachelor of Arts in Music um, from Wheaton College. Matthew then got his MD from the University of North Dakota School of Medicine in 1996 and did internship and residency at the University of Michigan, then went on to the Mayo Clinic where he is now in 1999, initially as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, I rose to the ranks to become what is now a professor of pharmacology and of oncology. He's authored over 100 scientific manuscripts, several book chapters, letters, abstracts. He's trained oncology fellows, uh, residents, and graduate students. In 2005, he was nominated as one of the best doctors in America, as one of America's top physicians. In 2007 and 2008, he was nominated as one of America's top oncologists. He was given an award as Mayo Clinic Fellowship Teacher of the Year in 2009, and most recently uh, was nominated as, as a top oncologist by the International Association of Oncologists. Uh, Matthew is known best to me as a renowned leader in the field of pharmacogenetics for tamoxifen in ER-positive breast cancer. He also co-leads the breast cancer, guided, uh, breast cancer genome guided therapy, also known as the beauty study at the Mayo Clinic, and the Center for Individualized Medicine within the Mayo Clinic. He's the co-principal investigator of the Mayo Clinic uh, Breast Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, which we know is a large research slash clinical research enterprise, and also the co-leader of the Women's Cancer Program and the chair of the Breast Cancer Disease Oriented Group at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Getz does not have a financial interest as a consultant for Lilly um, and he does, sorry, he does have financial interest as a consultant for Lilly and grant slash research support from Lilly and Pfizer. Uh, Dr. Alan Arf Harford, MD, PhD, and course director for the CMA activity reports that his relationship with the industry has been resolved by validating the content of this presentation through peer review. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Matthew? Well, thanks, Todd. It's uh, indeed a pleasure to, to be here and, and to see uh, um, uh, many familiar faces, people that I worked with within the uh, uh, alliance and uh, uh, getting to know Todd over the years and also getting to, uh, seeing faces and putting names to faces uh, uh, for people that I've admired from afar uh, for many years. So uh, I'm going to talk today a little bit about um, uh, endocrine-resistance bre breast cancer. And uh, this is a field that's really changing very rapidly uh, with a lot of new drugs that are coming forward. And I'm going to focus a little bit on some of the drugs that are moving forward in this space, but also um, uh, some of the drugs that uh, we're working on and, and, and some of the research changes that I think are going to change the paradigm for how we think about patients. Um, <clears throat> so um, this is just... Uh, um, uh, I'm going to actually uh, go back to the previous slide here. So this is my disclosure here. 
Um, and uh, I do receive research, uh, or excuse me, I have been a consultant for Lilly, but the funds go to Mayo Clinic. I don't take those personally. And, and the research support is actually for ongoing clinical trials that we have from, uh, with Lilly and Pfizer. So um, the outline here is I'm going to first focus a little bit about the importance of the estrogen receptor. And for many of you, this is just review, but I, I like to use this as a historical basis for really uh, going off and talking about uh, other aspects of endocrine resistance. I'm going to talk a little bit about primary or intrinsic resistance versus secondary res resistance, and then talk a little bit about some of the selective relative, these are relative new targets, some of them are old targets, but these selective targets in endocrine-resistant breast cancer. Um, and so um, right now, as many of you know, for the treatment of breast cancer, we have a number of strategies that we can use. Uh, we can block or target the estrogen receptor with SERMs or these SIRDs or selective estrogen receptor down regulators. Um, the SIRDs are actually coming forward as a really exciting area. Um, uh, but we also obviously have the ability to block or to, uh, to get rid of estrogen, and that's what the aromatase inhibitors and of course, the data with the aromatase inhibitors now are really beginning to emerge um, uh, as to their importance. So um, I show this slide just as to, to really outline the overview of the uh, classic genomic estrogen signaling pathway. And I show this to you, many of you know this, the importance of the uh, uh, estradiol binding to its receptor, the dimerization, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, bringing in co-activators and co-repressors, uh, effects then uh, sitting down as a transcription factor, and then having effects on uh, RNA expression and ultimately protein. So this view, view of uh, the estrogen receptor, of course, is this classic view has been utilized in breast cancer, either, as I mentioned before, to get rid of estrogen or to target estrogen receptor directly. And if you look at the studies that have been uh, done in this particular setting, that is, using tamoxifen, uh, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, tamoxifen, as you know, has substantial uh, effects to reduce the, re the risk of recurrence. It improves breast cancer mortality and overall survival. And you also know that aromatase inhibitors are slightly better than tamoxifen. I just note here that this, this is going from 0 to 50 here, but you see there's about a four, 3 to 4 percent difference as it relates to recurrence. And the most recent uh, EBCT TCG um, uh, Lancet publication now suggests that there's about a 2 to 3 percent survival advantage in favor of the aromatase inhibitors. So, the, you know, if you, if you look at going from here to here, uh, comparing and the use of hormonal therapy in breast cancer, you're talking about anywhere from about a 50 to 60 percent reduction in the risk of recurrence, substantial gains in overall um, uh, breast cancer mortality and overall survival. Well, you also probably know these data, but I think it's important to show this, but that in, in tumors that are estrogen receptor negative or estrogen receptor poor, there's no benefit of tamoxifen. Uh, and um, this is obviously uh, has led us to really the summary here that the estrogen receptor is a one of the most highly studied and validated markers in oncology. Adjuvant hormonal therapy results in substantial gains. Uh, aromatase inhibitors are slightly better than tamoxifen. And... Um, 
Then, as I mentioned, we have emerging data that will be coming forward with regard to fulvestrant in the metastatic setting, compared directly with aromatase inhibitors, and fulvestrin is also being used in some adjuvant trials. So in terms of this high-level overview, uh, it's important to understand that, obviously, within breast cancer, there's great heterogeneity. So even though I mentioned the, the, for the fact that we know, for example, within this basal subtype or in the uh, sort of uh, HER2 ER negative subtype, there's clearly no benefit of hormonal therapy. But yet, uh, within these other subtypes, for example, in luminal A, which is represented right here, luminal B, and also a subtype of ER-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer, that there is incredible heterogeneity as it relates to not only outcome, but endocrine response. So uh, over the last 10 or 15, tw 20 years, there's been a lot of uh, attempts to use this information to identify patients that would be sensitive or resistant to our endocrine therapies. And um, I, obviously, I, 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 it would be impossible to summarize all of this, uh, the data, but I think suffice it to say that um, it, as it relates to endocrine resistance, we try to divide up endocrine resistance into two buckets. Primary endocrine resistance, of course, is tumors that really have de novo resistance. These tumors are not responding to any endocrine therapy at all. And a few years ago, there was an endocrine resistance working group put together at NCI where the definition was put together that, that primary endocrine resistance are those patients in the adjuvant setting that would have recurrence within the first two years of therapy or in the metastatic setting, progression within the first six months. Now, this is, you know, a bit arbitrary, but this is how the definitions, how people have, uh, have created these definitions. Um, so <clears throat> what are some of the reasons for this uh, resistance or this so-called primary resistance? Well, one of the really well-studied uh, uh, mechanisms uh, that has come out of the Baylor group and other areas is the so-called uh, EGFR, HER2, uh, um, uh, ER axis, and this is actually something that is known that in tumors that overexpress uh, growth factors such as EGFR or HER2, that there is something that can be referred to as uh, membrane-initiated steroid signaling, and that blocking the estrogen receptor with tamoxifen alone is simply just not enough. Uh, for example, it's, it's known that you can take um, uh, signals from outside the cell, and those signals can actually directly phosphorylate or activate the estrogen receptor. So in these particular settings, uh, it's known that there is, can be de novo resistance. And this just shows you an example of this. This is from the ATAC clinical trial. This is in patients uh, looking at HER2 negative and HER2 positive breast cancer. And you can see that, uh, and I apologize, this doesn't show up very well in this particular screen. It does on mine here. But patients with HER2 amplified breast cancer have higher rates of recurrence when treated with hormonal therapy. And this, interestingly, is both with um, uh, tamoxifen on the left as well as aromatase inhibitors on the right. So um, fast forward, of course, to about uh, 2005 or 2004, uh, there, was a, there has been attempts to sort of model and bring all this information together into multi-gene panels. Uh, the recurrence score is one particular multi-gene assay that uh, is used, as you know, on a regular basis in the clinic. And this multi-gene panel 
uh, is able to identify patients treated with tamoxifen at low, intermediate, or high risk. So you might call these high-risk patients here in this category as a group of patients that obviously might have so-called de novo or intrinsic resistance. They have, they're at higher risk for recurrence. Well, what makes up this recurrence score? Well, the recurrence score, as you know, is there's an algorithm, but one of the drivers of the, uh, this algorithm is HER2, uh, ER, and proliferation. So that if you identify a group of patients in the lowest category, these tend to be patients with high levels of ER, low proliferation, uh, and low HER2. So um, uh, a summary, if you will, a high-level summary of genes and pathways associated with this primary endocrine resistance could be, obviously, tumors that have low or absent ER, tumors that have ER, uh, that have HER2 uh, present. And I would just note that, you know, I think in 2016, we're beginning to see some of this de novo resistance obviously abrogated in the setting trastuzumab because we just don't give, you know, um, hormonal therapy alone for HER2-positive, ER-positive patients anymore. But I think a major category here that's still being worked out is the so-called luminal B. In the luminal B, we know that there is activation of growth factor pathways. There's many different pathways. For example, EGFR1 could be included in this. Uh, many of these uh, tumors within this category will have activation of proliferation genes. And there is a number of these uh, commercially available gene expression profiles or path, uh, uh, excuse me, um, profiles or assays that are available that can identify sort of higher risk patients. But what's not clear is what to do with these um, higher risk patients. I think it's becoming clear that we can identify a group of low risk patients uh, where the tumor is driven by ER and those patients can do well with hormonal therapy, but what about some of these other patients? And uh, obviously what the, the field has done has been focusing on giving chemotherapy, sort of nonspecific chemotherapy, and chemotherapy works well for breast cancer. But we also know that um, there are, um, there's, there's going to be a, a, many different reasons why the luminal B subsets will have uh, worse prognosis. So with that in mind, I'm going to move on to this idea of secondary clinical resistance. And again, this is what the, a working group came up with, recurrence after year two of adjuvant endocrine therapy or within 12 months of completing adjuvant endocrine therapy, or progression occurring six or more months after initiating endocrine therapy for metastatic disease. So I'm going to focus today a little bit on this area of secondary endocrine resistance, just as it relates to uh, uh, PI3 kinase, AKTM tor pathway, uh, the estrogen receptor, and this is sort of the old revisited, okay? So I think the, the estrogen receptor pathways uh, and the estrogen receptor is very interesting with regard to the discovery of these activating mutations in the ligand binding domain just in the past several years. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a, a particular a gene um, and a, a kinase that uh, uh, that may actually have some important in ER positive breast cancer, and I'm going to end uh, with the, uh, the uh, focus being on CDK4 and CDK6. So this pathway, of course, I don't have to tell this group and, and Todd about the importance of this particular pathway. This uh, pathway is, uh, is uh, activated in a multitude of different uh, cancers. Uh, in breast cancer, up to 40% of breast cancers harbor mutations in, in the, uh, in the uh, PIK3CA. 
And it's been a bit confusing because you, it's been known that if you transfect in or if you, uh, if you model these mutations in vitro, that actually they're oncogenic. But yet in patients, for example, and within the luminal A breast cancer, these mutations are associated actually with better prognosis. prognosis. And in fact, within TCGA, it was noted that uh, within the luminal A subset of, of cancers right here, which is in the blue here, that uh, these PIK3CA mutations were not associated with pathway activation, such as, for example, either phospho-AKT or uh, uh, riboS6 kinase or any of the other downstream uh, activations uh, markers. So um, the, it's known that this pathway is clearly important, but in terms of understanding it um, in its role, it's, it's still obviously a work in progress. So there's obviously Obviously, a lot of different drugs um, that are known to, uh, to be uh, to target this pathway. This is Todd's paper from a few years ago, and one of the interesting things that uh, Todd showed in this paper was that um, if you look at this pathway, that actually long-term estrogen deprivation in both the MCF7, this is ZR75, the MDA361, and HCC, and in all situations that long-term estrogen deprivation can actually lead to activation of this pathway, and it's very difficult to see here. But if you look at markers such as phospho-AKT and phospho-70S6 kinase, there's clear, there's clear evidence for activation. And that brings up a, a question, um, and that is going back to these data from, uh, if I go back to this particular slide right here, you have uh, PIK3CA mutations here, uh, but you do not have evidence for activation of the pathway. And so one of the questions that comes up, and I think that I, as I read this paper, wondered, and that is, is does the pathway have to be fully activated in some way uh, before drugs which target that pathway will, will be effective. And I think that's still being worked out. In the, uh, um, uh, in a, a summary of this uh, um, is that these mutations, they result in hyperactivity of the pathway in vitro, but not always. And for example, not in the luminal A breast cancer subtype. And drugs which target this pathway are already approved, and I'll tell you a little bit about those data. There's a lot of drugs uh, that are uh, being studied. And so one of the major hypotheses that people have had, I think from the start, is that the effects of drugs that target this pathway would be greater in uh, those tumors that harbor these mutations. And um, I think if you look at the data thus far, it's been interesting. And it hasn't necessarily been clear. So in the Bolero 2, this is a, a, a study which randomized patients to either placebo or everolimus. These are all women that had progressed on an aromatase inhibitor. And as you know, this led to the FDA approval of the drug. This just shows you the progression-free survival data. This was at an earlier follow-up. These data have been published and then uh, subsequently uh, reanalyzed several times. But the bottom line was there was about a uh, anywhere from a six to seven-month difference in terms of progression free survival. But if you look at the data, um, and this was a secondary analysis of this particular study that was published by Gabe Hortabaji uh, just literally last year, using um, and looking at um, uh, formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded archived tumor blocks and looking at PIK3CA mutations, and I'm, look, and I'm showing you the data here, there really was no evidence that uh, PIK3CA mutations 
were associated with the benefit of, uh, of Everolimus. Now, this was a bit surprising. Uh, now, this is looking at mutations. They also looked at, um, for example, pathway activation as well. So not just looking at PIK3CA, but for example, looking at uh, other markers in the pathway or P10 loss. Um, uh, but other studies have also been looking at this, uh, have, have really uh, come to some similar conclusions as well. So this is the Fergie trial. This is using a PAN, PI3 kinase inhibitor, uh, pictolisib, uh, uh, and uh, fulvestrant versus fulvestrant alone. And what you can see is that um, <clears throat> this particular study enrolled patients, again, who were refractory to aromatase inhibitors. Uh, and stratification was actually by whether or not they were PIK3CA mutant or had P10 loss. But this was all done using uh, formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded uh, samples. And as you know, uh, uh, this study, study has not been published, but it's been presented. There was no association between PIK3CA mutation status and outcomes. This is comparing the mutant versus the wild type. In the overall study, there was a hint of a, a bit of uh, activity of this drug. It was not statistically significant. And then Jose Baselda uh, presented these data at San Antonio this year. This is the BEL2 trial. This is using Novartis's PAN-PI3 kinase inhibitor. And again, fairly similar design. Locally advanced metastatic women had progressed on an AI, randomized to uh, buparlicib plus fulvestrant versus placebo plus fulvestrant. Now here is where they, the, there was a difference, and that was they used formalin fixed paraffin embedded samples, but they also collected circulating tumor DNA uh, and assessed PI3 kinase or uh, PIK3CA mutations from the circulating tumor DNA. And the bottom line is that when they used the archive samples to assess for the um, uh, PIK3CA mutations, they saw no difference. But when they used the, uh, um, the um, circulating tumor DNA, what they identified was a substantial difference comparing buparlicid plus, plus Fulvestrant versus the placebo fulvestrant. And this was a fairly, well, I would think this is a clinically significant difference of about seven versus 3.2 months. And so uh, one of the conclusions of um, uh, Jose was, well, that you know we should not be looking using archived samples to be detecting, uh, for example, uh, a drug effect or uh, as a biomarker of a, uh, of a patient in a metastatic setting you know, many, many years later. And I think that is there's quite a bit of truth to that. And I think as we go forward, uh, um, it's clear that as we run our studies, it's not enough. It's important to collect archive samples, but we need to be obtaining fresh biopsies from patients. Uh, and uh, one of the exciting ways to do this in this particular study is to, is to use the uh, uh, circulating tumor DNA. So if I were to just summarize this area, um, the, this particular pathway is critically important, and it's an important as an escape pathway in ER-positive breast cancer. There is some evidence that long-term estrogen deprivation activates this pathway, but there's probably a subset of patients that also benefit from this drug up front. For example, perhaps the luminal B subgroup of patients. Um, I would argue that using archived FFPE samples to detect alterations of the pathway is certainly not useful to do, predict drug benefit in the metastatic setting, and that further studies uh, examining the role of these mutations using on-study tumor and circulating tumor DNA biopsies uh, should be prioritized as we're trying to learn and understand how to use uh, these drugs uh, in, in this setting. 
So I'm going to skip now to this, and, and it's the estrogen receptor revisited. And this is some really exciting data that is just beginning to emerge. Uh, as you know, probably about two to three years ago, there was multiple independent groups that identified um, uh, mutations in the ESR1 ligand binding domain. And the interesting thing about these mutations is the fact that they were actually first discovered more than 20 years ago. Uh, but when, when people began to look at them, they saw that the frequency was so low uh, in the primary tumors that the whole field was sort of abandoned. People just really felt that this was not a viable, um, if you will, mechanism by which uh, there was resistance to hormonal therapy. Uh, but what really has brought this, this whole area back to, to light again is the development of next-gen sequencing and the ability to identify these alterations in the metastatic setting. So I'm just going to show you one particular paper. Um, this, uh, of course, is a schema. This is from uh, Jesselson et al., published in Clinical Cancer Research. This is about two years ago. And you can see that uh, in this paper, what they identified was a number of alterations within the ligand binding domain. Um, and the important thing was that if you look, these alterations are not present in the primary tumor or present at very low frequency, but they're enriched in the metastatic setting. Now, this particular study suggested that these alterations were present in up to 20% uh, of the metastatic uh, tumor. Tumors. What do these alterations do? Well, um, in this particular situation, this is looking at a number of, of, of different uh, constructs. These are a number of different mutations. And what you can see is that using a luciferase construct is that uh, in, the, uh, in the vehicle uh, uh, setting, that these cells just are on. The, the luciferase is just activated. There's constitutive activation. And that really, there's no difference in the presence or absence of estradiol. So the the, the thought here is that um, that when uh, these cells are when the mutation is present, it's signaling independent of uh, estradiol, and you would all, you would argue, of course, that getting rid of estrogen would clearly be insufficient in these situations. But also, there's a concern that uh, there may be tr uh, treatment resistance. So this is actually using increasing doses of 4-hydroxy tamoxifen, and you can see that. Uh, in comparing to the uh, wild type uh, versus the uh, mutant, that there is, um, um, uh, again, uh, as it relates to luciferase activity, there's, there's not only greater luciferase, but there's also requ a requirement for more drug to inhibit uh, that particular output. I would just note here, um, I always have to point out to the medical students when I see publications like this, um, you know, 100, 200, 500, 700, you know, the concentrations of 4-HT in patients are about the, on the range of about uh, 5 to 7 nanomolars. So these are really concentrations that are probably not relevant, but you can still see the idea that uh, higher concentrations are needed. Here you're looking at fulvestrant, and you're, see, you're, see, you're seeing really the same thing here, and that is that um, higher concentrations are needed. The other thing that was interesting about this paper is that they showed that there was actually some resistance to estrogen receptor degradation. And I think the mechanism for this is, clear, is not understood. We know that fulvestrant turns over the estrogen receptor, but you can see that in the presence of this particular alteration, uh, there was relative resistance to that. 
Well, what does this mean uh, uh, prognostically? So you have these mutations. Does it really mean anything? Well, this is the first study that actually really looked at this. This was presented at San Antonio. This is from the Memorial Sloan Group, uh, 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 Chandralopathy et al. And what they did in the context of Bolero 2 was they actually used a plasma sample that had been frozen. So as you know, circulating tumor DNA, there's the right way to collect it, and there's the wrong way to collect it. But then there's you know, practical, well, we've got a plasma sample that's sitting around the freezer. And what they did in actually in the study was they used a, a plasma sample that was collected prior to the study, and actually had, they, had, they had the data on, on the majority of patients. So you can see there was um, nearly 700 patients randomized to either the combination 485 versus uh, exemestine alone. And, and as I showed you previously, if you look at local, uh, there was a difference of about five months in terms of progression-free survival. And so uh, what the authors did in this study was they looked only at two mutations. So they looked at the D5385 as well as the Y537S. So this is not a comprehensive view of the, of the mutational status. But it was really a first look. And what you can see, which was interesting, is this is actually quite frequent. So this is now going back to this uh, particular uh, design. We're looking at circulating tumor DNA. Um, so these are our, 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 our circulating samples. Uh, what we, what's not present in this, of course, is biopsies. But you can see that nearly a third of patients had one of these mutations uh, present. You can see 15% had the D538G mutation, 78.8%. Uh, and there was actually a group that actually had the double mutation. Well, what was int quite interesting, and I'm, so I'm sorry for the, uh, the fact that this is, um, you're missing some of the top, but this, these mutations are clearly prognostic. So if you look at the uh, wild type for, uh, in terms of median overall survival, 32 months versus 20.7 months, and you can see this, the slight differences here with these two, but look at the patients that had the double mutant. They seem to even have a, a, a worse overall survival. So one of the questions that comes up with these particular alterations is what is the optimal drug for the treatment of an ESR1 mutated breast cancer? If I were to go back to this slide right here, one of the things that you can see is that um, for patients here treated with exemestane, uh, or excuse me, treated with um, uh, the, the uh, exemestane or exemestane plus erverolimus, the overall um, uh, median survival is 20 months. But if you look at progression-free survival, in those patients that were treated with exemestane alone, progression-free survival was two months. So these patients, uh, by the way, had previously progressed on a, um, a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor, were treated with exemestane, and literally uh, the median progression-free survival, I mean, that's at the first follow-up. So you're seeing patients, they're coming in, they're coming back for their first follow-up, and all those patients are, pro are progressing. What's not clear based on this, as I mentioned, is what's the optimal drug uh, for the treatment of these ESR1 mutations. And so there's a, a whole new class of drugs that, uh, that are coming forward um, that really uh, uh, supposedly better target or degrade the estrogen receptor, the so-called SIRDs. So most of the drug companies have some of these in their portfolio. For example, Genentech recently bought out uh, a, a, a particular drug um, uh, that was made by, or the drug is called uh, ARN810. I know AstraZeneca has them. And I think the question is, 
do, will these SIRDs work better uh, in um, patients with these mutations? So um, it's, it, I think the other question, of course, is um, can one use tamoxifen in this situation, and could you potentially actually give higher concentrations of tamoxifen? So um, drugs which target or degrade, degrade the ER are, is an area that people are looking at. Um, and uh, fulvestrant right now is the only SIRD that's currently available. I think we're very anxious to, to see in, in some of the studies in the metastatic setting, is fulvestrant a better drug than aromatase inhibitors for these um, uh, uh, estrogen receptor or ESR1 mutations. You would assume that that would be the case, but we don't have any data as of yet. So we, so we have the data that this is prognostic, but we don't have what I would call clinical utility yet where we can potentially use this information. I mentioned that these, there's many SIRDs that are in development, and I'm going to talk a little bit right now about a potent SIRM, uh, endoxifen, that may have preferential activity in this tumor type. And I'm going to focus a little bit on getting back to this as it relates to what we think is a potential novel target for endoxifen, which is protein kinase C beta 1. So um, this is now shifting, and I'm moving from just talking about ESR1 mutations to tamoxifen. And this is the tamoxifen biotransformation pathway. I show this to you just to, just to bring out the point that it is complex, and tamoxifen is converted into many different metabolites, and these metabolites, some of them have pro-estrogenic properties, and some of them have anti-estrogenic properties. And of course, um, the different co-activators and co-repressors that these these different molecules actually recruit, uh, then uh, ultimately can affect um, the, uh, the readout. So um, I have been working in this area for some time uh, on the role of tamoxifen and tamoxifen biotransformation. Um, there is uh, evidence that um, tamoxifen itself is transformed into this metabolite endosmethyl tamoxifen, which is present at a concentration of about 500 to 700 nanomolar, and that CYP2D6 is responsible for the conversion of the oxidation into this metabolite here. So we published a few years ago, um, and others have published, that the concentrations of Z-endoxifen are directly related to CYP2D6 genotype. So why would uh, this be important? Well, there are data that demonstrate that endoxifen and 4-hydroxytamoxifen are active metabolites in terms of their binding to the estrogen receptor, about 100-fold more active, and also in terms of their ability to inhibit proliferation. So the hypothesis has been that the concentrations of endoxifen could be important in the clinical outcomes of patients. And I just show you this particular paper. We published this a few years ago uh, in JAMA, showing that in a cohort of about 1,300 patients that we did see uh, differences both in terms of time to recurrence and event-free survival as it relates to um, CYP2D6 genotype. And uh, so-called poor metabolizers had higher rates of recurrences than patients who were extensive. And we related this, most of this related to the concentrations of endoxifen. Now, there have been other studies, however, that have looked at this. For example, the ATAC clinical trial showed absolutely no association with CYP2D6. 
Big Y98, which is another study, showed no association. But we published in Navy CSG8, which is another trial that led to the approval of aromatase inhibitors, that there was definitely a CYP2D6 effect. It was uh, uh, statistically significant, but it was only in patients treated with tamoxifen. So for patients that were treated with anastrozole, um, there was no association. But I think suffice it to say what's happened with this field is people have looked retrospectively at these studies, and there's been a lot of, um, there's clearly no um, consensus on, on this, and, and there are prospective data that will be coming out that can, will hopefully be able to shed light on this. But in the meantime, what we've done is actually gone on, based on the information about endoxifen, to study this drug um, uh, in both in vitro and in vivo. And this is just one particular experiment. This is using Angela Brody's aromatase expressing MCF7 cell line treated with either androstene diode alone. Uh, tamoxifen, these tumors were harvested to look at biomarkers, letrozole or endoxifen. Endoxifen was very active in this particular model. Now I'm going to show you that the concentrations that we achieved with endoxifen in this model were substantially greater than what can be achieved uh, in, in human beings. So someone might say, well, th th this is not really valid because you can't achieve these concentrations of endoxifen. Well, that was the whole point, and our whole point was that if we could achieve these concentrations, then that actually could potentially represent a new therapeutic. I'm going to just show you here in the letrozole-treated group that became resistant. They were treated and randomized to either tamoxifen, and they grew on tamoxifen versus endoxifen. And what we found, which was interesting, when we looked at these cells, this is the letrozole-sensitive cells. I'm just showing you this comparison. This was actually uh, the group treated at baseline. This is the letrozole-resistant cells treated with tamoxifen. And what we're looking at here is um, um, the effects of uh, these serms and letrozole on AKT. And here you can see in the letrozole-resistant cells, and here finally you have the letrozole-resistant cells treated with endoxifen. And just looking at this one particular biomarker, phospho-AKT, we saw substantial differences between the tamoxifen-treated group, and I'm going to just show you again what I'm referring to, the tamoxifen-treated group here uh, versus the endoxifen treated group here. And so this actually got us thinking that potentially that there was uh, another um, uh, target for endoxifen. These are now taking these letrozole-resistant MCF7 cells, um, treating them with different concentrations of CIRM versus endoxifen. And this is at one hour. And you can see that there was clearly evidence that there was a reduction in phospho-AKT at one hour. Now, this was clearly different than tamoxifen, but a question really was, why, why is there a difference? Well, we've gone on to actually do, um, we worked with a, a particular group. This is Ann Bode out of the University of Minnesota who did docking studies where she did shape screening, pharmacocore modeling, and ligand protein docking for oncogenic kinases. And what she identified was that for many kinases, the docking energy of endoxifen was always below that of tamoxifen, suggesting that endoxifen was more favorable. And the one um, substrate that came out uh, was protein kinase C. And I'm going to just show you these data, and you're probably going to think this is back to the future, because this really is. If you go back 
back to the 1980s, there were actually data that high concentrations of tamoxifen could inhibit protein kinase C. And what we did here, this is actually, first of all, looking at on the right, you're looking at the kinase activity, protein kinase C beta 1. And you can see that endoxifen inhibited PKC beta 1 with a IC50 about uh, 300 nanomolar. This is actually uh, PKC beta, uh, excuse me, endoxifen in the PKC beta 1 binding pocket. And we've gone on to actually identify that endoxifen indeed does bind beta, uh, PKC beta 1 very specifically. You can see that at the concentrations of about 100 nanomolar. But notice that actually tamoxifen does it as well uh, at, at, at the concentrations of about 2 micromolar, whereas these other metabolites uh, uh, really have uh, very low potency with regard to binding. So the question is, so what? So um, little is known really about PKC beta 1. And so one of the things that we started with was just taking uh, a number of different cell lines and uh, knocking down PKC beta 1. Here I'm showing you uh, at least three different siRNAs with different potency uh, knocking down PKC beta 1. Um, these were actually shown to be quite specific. They don't, do not uh, affect the, the other PKCs. And here on the right, what we're doing is a simple experiment looking and treating and looking at proliferation, treating these. MCF7 cells with androstene dion, you can see they grow quite well, treating them with one micromolar of tamoxifen versus one micromolar of endoxifen. But you can see on the right that there's this profound effect uh, on proliferation with, not, with uh, knockdown of PKC beta 1, even in the absence of estrogen or SERMs. And notice that especially in the presence of tamoxifen, that this effect is, is quite marked. With this, so the suggestion here is that uh, PKC beta 1 uh, and targeting PKC beta 1 may have a role as it relates to, uh, uh, may be a viable target for the treatment of ER positive breast cancer. Now, what I'm not going to go into, there's a lot more experiments here for the sake of time. I would sh share with you, we've shown that the uh, PKC beta 1 does interact with the estrogen receptor, um, and we've shown, and we're in the process of, of just finishing up uh, the mutation experiments where we uh, at, uh, mutate the binding pocket. But the bottom line, this suggests that PKC beta 1 may be an important uh, drug target um, uh, for uh, uh, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. So I'm going to summarize what we've shown here. Endoxifen has greater antitumor activity compared to tamoxifen and letrozole, both in vitro and in vivo. It inhibits PKC beta 1 with an IC50 of 300 nanomolar compared to about uh, 5 of tamoxifen. That's with regard to the IC50. Uh, it, uh, I mentioned that it physically interacts with the estrogen receptor. Knockdown inhibits proliferation, both in the absence and presence of estrogen. And I think a big question that we're still struggling with is we know that endoxifen binds with greater potency to the estrogen receptor. What's the role of PKC beta 1? And uh, really, how important is endoxifen's effect on PKC beta 1 in terms of its overall activity? And I think that's still to be uh, uh, understood. So this is just where we're at. Uh, we went to NCI back in 2009 to develop uh, endoxifen. We've taken it through phase 1. Uh, our phase 1 study started uh, in 2011, and phase 2 study started last year. And we just finished the phase 1. I'm just going to share you with you a little bit of the data. We actually just presented this at San Antonio. Um, this was the study design. We uh, took patients uh, uh, taking the drug tamoxifen. 
We started out at if a dose, this was not by accident, but this is what the, what the modeler suggested, uh, which would give us a concentration of about uh, 100 to 500 nanomolar. We started at a dose of 20 milligrams a day, and you can see the dose escalation, which was relatively conservative. And we actually stopped the dose escalation at 160 milligrams. And the reason we stopped was um, not because of, uh, of toxicity, but we felt like we had achieved our, our goals from a PK standpoint. So our, the eligibility to get onto this phase one study, you had to have ER positive breast cancer, you had to progress on aromatase inhibitor, you could have unlimited number of prior systemic therapies, you could be uh, pre or postmenopausal. Uh, and you had to have adequate performance status. So this just tells you a little bit about the, the patients that came onto the study. There was both a dose escalation cohort as well as dose es es expansion cohorts. Um, you can see that all patients had ER positive disease. There were so few patients with ER positive, PR negative, uh, and HER2 positive. And, th and these are patients, by the way, uh, this is documented from archived uh, tumor specimens. You can here see the site of, lung, uh, site of um, metastatic disease. Uh, Patients that had chemotherapy, prior chemotherapy, so most of the patients had prior chemotherapy in the metastatic setting in the dose escalation cohort. Uh, <clears throat> There was a substantial number of patients that actually had prior tamoxifen, both here in the metastatic setting uh, or and or adjuvant setting. And you can see, for example, in our expansion cohort, most all the patients had prior fulvestrant. So the bottom line with toxicity is we didn't actually determine an MTD. We had one patient at the 60 milligram dose that had a, uh, a PE, um, uh, but we did not observe any additional dose-limiting toxicities. We had one patient that had a grade four hypertriglyceridemia. This is very CIRM-like now if you see some of these toxicities. We did have some hot flashes, um, but one of the things that we were very um, uh, focused on was the eye examinations. And, and you have to be careful not to repeat history because you know that when you give high doses of tamoxifen, uh, prior studies suggested retinal toxicity, and this was one of the ba major reasons why today we can't give real high concentrations or high doses of tamoxifen because of uh, retinal toxicity. But in this study, we saw no evidence of any eye toxicity using dilated eye examination. Here's the pharmacokinetic summary. Uh, this is uh, uh, treatment at the 20 milligram. I'm going to focus just right here. But you can see that the Cmax here of 66 or 67 nanograms per ml what we're talking about here at the 20 milligram dose uh, is if you were to compare this to the concentrations of endoxifen in a tamoxifen-treated patient, you're talking about concentrations of about 15 to 20 nanograms per ml. Um, and out here at up to 80 to 100, you can see where we're well above that, for example, concentrations uh, anywhere from uh, 600 to 1,000 nanograms per ml. Half-light was, was about 50 hours. There was a bit of accumulation, um, uh, but uh, not after two and six months. And this just shows you the summary. So at 40 and 80 milligrams per day, uh, the C-min, uh, 248 and 602 nanograms per ml. And you can see the, the, the comparison to tamoxifen. So we achieved our goal, which was basically to overcome some of the issues uh, with regard to tamoxifen metabolism by giving the drug directly. So um, did we see any anti-tumor activity? 
So what would we expect? Well, Kent Osborne published a few years ago uh, that tamoxifen response rates after progression on aromatase inhibitor about were in his study 0%. We know that fulvestrant after a non-steroidal AI gives you a response rate of about 8% with progression-free survival of four and a half months, exemestane 4%. Um, so we actually saw a fair amount of anti-tumor activity, and I apologize for what this shows. I'm going to move on to a different slide, but there were three confirmed partial responses, and we saw activity in patients with both prior progression on, uh, on AIs and tamoxifen. And this is where I'm going to focus uh, a little bit of the data on here. This uh, on the left is patients that had no prior tamoxifen or did not progress on tamoxifen, and this is uh, in red are those patients that had prior progression on tamoxifen. So you can see that the drug has uh, uh, anti-tumor activity in patients with prior progression on tamoxifen. Clearly activity in these patients, and all these patients, of course, had prior progression on AIs. But what we found was very interesting was this, and that is in those patients that had progressed on both AI and fulvestrant, and whose prior treatment was fulvestrant, we had a, a substantial amount of anti-tumor activity, at least as it relates to this waterfall plot. And um, uh, I'm going to give you an example here. This is a, uh, a patient of mine who was previously uh, treated with tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting. She progressed on tamoxifen. She progressed on aromatase inhibitor, progressed on fulvestrant, progressed on an everlimus regimen, and she was on study for, for more than nine months with, uh, with a partial response. And you can see the, the major response here in her liver. <clears throat> So where are we taking this particular drug? Well, we're taking it into uh, the cooperative group setting. Um, this um, is one of those things where, you know, uh, um, the observation of anti-tumor activity in a, in a single study is, is promising, but you have to compare it, obviously, in a randomized fashion. So this is a study uh, taking women who progressed on aromatase inhibitor, uh, we require a tumor biopsy to confirm ER status and HER2 status, and they're randomized either to moxifen or endoxifen, and at progression, um, they are crossed over to endoxifen. So this study started about um, not quite a year ago, and we have about, we've enrolled about 35 patients on this particular study, uh, and the goal is, is to um, enroll about 85 patients total um, on this study. Um, I'm going to just end, I just have a few minutes to end, and I just want to focus a little bit on CDK4-6 inhibitors because this is actually also an area which is really interesting. It's rapidly moving forward into the clinic, um, and, uh, and I think how we uh, think about and how we approach these patients uh, is going to be um, uh, and, uh, and the use of these uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors is, 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 is going to be a challenge. So I use this slide, again, as a backdrop, and that is in patients that have resistance to endocrine therapy, one of, the, uh, one of the things that we can see, of course, is that the estrogen receptor can signal independent of both estradiol or whether or not the, uh, the, uh, the estrogen receptor is occupied by either tamoxifen or, in this case, or a SERD. And so one of the major downstream uh, transcriptional targets of course, is cyclin D. As I mentioned in ESR1 mutants, this is uh, this trans this particular 
gene target can be on, independent of whether the estrogen is actually uh, present or absent. And uh, this has been recognized as a, um, a major target. So cyclin D1 uh, through its phosphorylation on RB, and then ultimately uh, um, uh, activation and the conversion of going from the uh, G1 into the S phase. And so cyclin D1, we know, activates CDK4 and 6 uh, and regulates this particular pathway. Well, as it turns out, that in breast cancer, and especially in ER-positive breast cancer, um, this has, has, a, has emerged as a very important pathway and, a, and also an important target. This slide is, is very difficult to show you, but I would just mention that there are a number of CDK6, uh, or sorry, a number of CDK inhibitors on the market. Uh, flavopyridol, of course, did not make it, but it's been studied extensively. Pavlociclib is really the first to be FDA approved, and you saw this week it was just FDA approved in combination with Fulvestrant. Novartis has a compound called ribociclib, and Lilly has a compound called abemociclib. And I would just point out that there are differences um, uh, with regard to these compounds in terms of their potency of the CDK's system. So for example, Pavlociclib, uh, a potency with about 9 to 11 nanomol, nanomolar for CDK4 versus um, abemociclib for about 2 nanomolar. And, and, and I think one of the things that you're going to see as I discuss this is that there are clearly are differences with these drugs, uh, both in terms of toxicity as well as efficacy. So this is the data with pavlociclib. Um, these were published. Pavlociclib in combination with letrozole in the first-line setting uh, substantially improves progression-free survival. This led to the the, in part to the um, accelerated FDA approval. Uh, uh, but now in the in so-called uh, Paloma 3 trial, this was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine and was just led to the FDA approval. Um, Progression-free survival was improved. But I just would point out is that these drugs really don't substantially change response. So you can see that response rate in, the, in this particular setting about 10% versus 6%, which was not statistically significant. And it really suggests that uh, these, uh, at least in the case of um, palpociclib, that the drug may be having um, more of a cytostatic effect. Uh, and what's going to be important as we, as we follow these patients long term is whether this drug improves overall survival. Okay, so I want to just end with a little bit of information on the bemociclib. So this drug is also moving forward in, in um, metastatic breast cancer. Uh, this drug has uh, been studied as a single agent, and this is where you begin to see substantial uh, contrast with a pavlociclib, and that is you see response. So this is a, a study that had, um, this is a single agent of bemociclib with a median number of prior therapies of about four to five, but you can see the drug induced a response rate as a single agent of about 30%. In combination with Fulvestrant, there was something uh, quite similar. We just presented some data at San Antonio combining abemociclib uh, with endocrine therapy, and you can see that, uh, so this was the schema. This is simply a phase 1B uh, study combining abemociclib with a number of different hormonal therapies. But what I want to again show you is that, again, this drug is quite active uh, in this setting. And so you're seeing response rates that actually um, are, are sort of uh, holding up. You're seeing these response rates of anywhere from about uh, 20 to 30 percent. But here's where the, there's also quite a bit of difference. So abemociclib, the toxicity, a substantial toxicity that's seen with this particular drug is diarrhea, and that's not seen with pavlociclib. So there's clear differences between these drugs, both if you look at cross-trial comparisons, both with response uh, as well as uh, toxicity.
Notice with this particular drug that there is um, some evidence for neutropenia, but you can see, for example, there's very little grade 3 neutropenia, uh, at least in this arm. There was a higher rate here. But this is uh, uh, different than pavlociclib, where uh, uh, cytopenias are really the main toxicity. So um, I think the summary of CDK4-6 inhibitors are that clearly are they're active, um, they're available in our patients, we can treat, uh, we can use them. There's no validated markers for selecting these patients uh, besides the estrogen receptor. Cross-trial comparisons suggest that there are differences in terms of toxicity and response rate. Whether this is going to affect, uh, uh, you know, long-term progression-free survival, overall survival unknown. Abemaciclib is behind pavlociclib in terms of the trials, but there, um, the phase three trials have been completed. There'll be a readout. And we'll see uh, these data emerging in the next few years. So I'm going to just end on that and just, just again, um, sh tell you that we're, we're in a very exciting time. Uh, we're in an exciting time because of the, uh, the new targets that are being identified and developed for the treatment of uh, endocrine-resistant breast cancer. And I think a challenge for all of us as we see these patients in the clinic is, is, is to how to identify the right person or the right drug for the right person. And as these drugs move forward, we sort of start all over again. And so as the uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors move into the clinic, now we're faced with the challenge of, okay, what are the, what are the, what are the targets for resistance to um, the um, uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors? And we can't assume necessarily that the drugs which we've used in the past will necessarily continue to be active in that situation. So a lot of excitement, also a lot of challenges, um, and uh, appreciate your time uh, during the talk today. Yeah. Thank you so much for the talk. Just going back to your first part of, uh, of your presentation, when you um, discussed the Bazalga study with the circulating tumor DNA and FFP DNA, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are for like the reason why circulating tumor DNA can um, you know give us an idea about a response versus the actual tumor DNA um, in, a, in FFP. I mean, is it just freshness of sample because? Circulating tumor DNA will come from the tumor, essentially. Yeah. I want to add to that. Sure. Some more question of should we be using circulating tumor DNA for precision medicine instead of FFP? Well, I think that's a that's a great question, and and you know if you look at the data, what, the data that I presented with regard to the everolimus and the PI3 kinase inhibitors, that's FFP tumor collected at the time of the initial diagnosis. So what we don't know. Um, is if you were to do a fresh biopsy at the time of uh, uh, the patient's randomized versus circulating tumor DNA, which would be a better predictor? We, we have no idea. What's, what's clear is that, you know, in that particular study, ctDNA was available. It's quite convenient. But I do think we really need careful studies to understand, you know, is, it, is there something special about ctDNA um, in terms of its relevance uh, versus, you know, um, uh, it could be that there's no difference if we had just done a fresh biopsy. What I do believe that we, is, as we're studying new drugs and we're delivering that drug, we can't assume 
genomically that at the time that we're seeing the patient six years out from their, uh, and they're having a recurrence, you know, six, seven years out, that, that that tumor genome is the same as what, you know, was collected seven years prior. And I think these studies really bear that out. Now, I think as clinicians, we're always a little bit reluctant to biopsy patients because, you know, it might be a bit of inconvenience. Um, we know that there are risks. No, no, no biopsy is without risk. But I would argue that, you know, we're spending a lot of money on developing these drugs, and we absolutely should not know and understand what we're targeting and what we're dealing with at the time that we're actually giving that drug. We can't assume that it's necessarily the same as it was seven years prior. Yeah. I really enjoyed the presentation. You know, as you revisited the estrogen receptors, particularly with endoxifen, uh, the, the, the statements you made that there's tremendous heterogeneity in these tumors, mm -hmm. have you or anyone looked at it from the standpoint of uh, heterogeneity around the estrogen receptor itself? So not only ER alpha and ER beta, but there's six to eight isoforms of right. Yeah, that's a great, I, I completely agree with you. I and mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a group um, uh, that I work with that's been interested in um, uh, estrogen receptor beta. And we know with estrogen receptor beta, there's multiple different splice isoforms. So I think we're just touching the surface. I think we, um, up until now, I mean, I can show you those data showing the fact that tamoxifen works and doesn't work in the ER negative. But there's so much more than that. Um, and, I, and, and also, I think, as it relates to the development of resistance as well. Um, Todd was sharing with me the protocol that he's uh, uh, developing um, uh, with Peter here, looking at using, uh, you know, alternating estrogen uh, plus uh, or estradiol plus uh, estrogen deprivation. I mean, this is something that's the adaptive responses that are occurring um, and, and understanding what's happening at the level of the microenvironment along with these uh, isoforms, these alterations along with the complexity of all the pathways around them. And, and I think this is, we're beginning, we, we're beginning now to, we have the information. It's digesting it. And I, I still believe that the best way we're going to sort this out is by doing carefully conducted studies, where you actually have a hypothesis, you study it prospectively, you intervene, you biopsy, uh, you assess. Um, and, and I think that's the way, and it's a challenge, of course, in this era of low, you know, um, uh, uh, if you will, uh, low reimbursements, um, uh, the the era with grant funding, and the, also the fact that it's harder to study drugs that are, you know, that are not funded by industry. You know, so if you if you have a great idea, how do you get that study funded? Well, ha it has to be funded, obviously, not from a pharmaceutical company. So um, these are the challenges, but we have to rise to the challenge. I would agree with you. So why did endoxavin make the full resistant tumors shrink in your study? And do you have tissue on this patient? Do you do ER sequencing, or do you have another idea? Um, we do. We have the tissues. Um, we're trying to sort that out right now. So as you know, um, what fulvestrin does is it inhibits the shuttling of the estrogen receptor into the nucleus. So one of the questions that comes up here is, is, is that um, um, is the uh, estrogen receptor in some way sort of different, is it different, is it poised in a different fashion that would allow the cells to respond to endoxin? We're trying to sort that out. It's a, it's a, um, it's something that uh, I don't have a good explanation for, and I'd love to talk to you about if you do, so. Yeah. So has there been any interest in combining orvestrant with tamoxifen 
etc. Combining the yeah. approaches, would you still get the same fifty? Would it be the same fifty percent suppression, or would you actually get a lower? You know, people have done combination studies. Um, uh, people have combined, for example, tamoxifen with an astrazole. And that was done in the ATAC trial. And that really didn't suggest that there was much benefit. In fact, it was probably a little bit worse than anastrozole alone. But people have, for example, combined fulvestrant uh, with an aromatase inhibitor. And those data are somewhat mixed. There was a SWOG study published in the New England Journal of Medicine suggested that there was benefit. In fact, there was a survival benefit. But there were a number of studies done in Europe um, that suggested no benefit. So um, some people have hypothesized that, you know, if you have a, a hormonally naive tumor that has, you know, not resistant, that actually there may be benefit of the so-called combined estrogen receptor, you know, both fulvestrin and an AI. I have yet to do this routinely in my practice where I treat patients with both fulvestrin and an AI uh, just because the data have been somewhat uh, mixed. But I would say that, you know, there haven't been a whole lot of home runs combining endocrine therapies, even though we all would hope that there would be. There just hasn't been. You expressed the question in a different way. Than this. Do you think you could define the 50% you're going to benefit? Well, I think that, you know, it's, what's clear to me is that um, we, can, we can identify and define the patients that have um, endocrine-sensitive tumors. I mean, I, I think clinicians are pretty good, and these are generally our tumors that have high levels of ER. They tend to have higher levels of PR, low levels of HER2. They tend to have low proliferation genes. But what's not clear to us, though, is uh, for those uh, patients that are in the so-called, if you will, uh, recurrence score oncotype intermediate or high risk, What's the best approach? We've right now, everybody just treats them with chemotherapy, but you know that's just sort of um, because that's the only other alternative we have. Um, <clears throat> but I think that what will happen going forward is we can dissect out and identify those particular pathways. So, for example, if you have a fossil, if you have an AKT mutation in a luminal B breast cancer, maybe you don't need to give chemotherapy. Maybe you can treat that patient more specifically. But these are uh, this this gets into the the complexity. So I think to answer your question. We can identify patients that are that should be endocrine responsive, and these gene expression profiles allow us to do this. But really focusing in on so-called more resistant tumors up front, um, there's there's a lot more heterogeneity with with those subtypes. Thank you. Yep.